Volume Three, Chapter One, of Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty-Second Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty-Second Century by Jane Loudon, Volume Three, Chapter One. When Roderick and Doctor and Werfen returned to the camp they found Edric most impatiently awaiting their arrival. He was too much agitated to speak, and the worthy doctor found all his troubles amply repaid by the interest his friends took in his welfare. Whilst Dr. Antwerfen was employed in relating his adventures to Edric, Roderick was occupied by a task far more difficult and important than any he had yet undertaken, namely that of organizing and of providing for the disorderly multitude that had thronged into his camp from the city. Their number was immense. Men, women, and children crowded round their deliverer, falling upon their knees, blessing him and kissing the edge of his garments. Roderick was affected even to tears. "'For heaven's sake, my good friends,' said he, "'spare me. I have done but my duty. I have been but a humble instrument in the hands of Providence. Address your thanks to him. There they are due.' Notwithstanding their warm expressions of gratitude, Roderick was quite aware it was not enough to have saved these people. He knew he must do something to provide them with food and lodging, and if he did not, when the first moment of enthusiasm should be passed, unpleasant scenes must inevitably take place. He accordingly made dispositions to this effect, with a prudence and sagacity which would have done credit to far more advanced years. Temporary huts were erected, till the streets of Seville could be cleared of the ruins that encumbered them and the houses in some measure repaired. Shelter for the inhabitants being thus provided, Roderick harangued the magistrates, directing them to take the people under their direction. These sapient ministers of justice gladly gave him possession of the town, which Roderick was too generous to assume without their permission, and acknowledged themselves and the garrison prisoners of war. The peasants, when they found the kindness with which the citizens had been treated, flocked in with provisions, and the camp of the Irish monarch soon resembled an immense fair. Alexis had followed his master during the whole of these arrangements, and had frequently sighed deeply as they proceeded. "'What is the matter with the boy?' said Roderick in one of these moments. "'I cannot imagine why he looks so melancholy.' The boy enthusiastically clasped his hands together, looking up to heaven as though murmuring an inward prayer. "'What can this mean?' exclaimed Roderick with astonishment. The boy took his master's hand, pressing it first to his lips, and then vehemently to his heart, and knelt before him, reverentially bending his forehead to the earth. The next moment, however, officers entering for directions, the attention of Roderick was diverted, and Alexis was forgotten. In the meantime, Monsieur de Mallet and his daughter, who had been exceedingly agitated by the events of the day, thought not of repose, but sat in the tent prepared for them, conversing upon the merits of their deliverers. "'I never saw a finer countenance,' said Monsieur de Mallet. "'So noble, so animated, and yet so good.' "'Good, indeed!' ejaculated his daughter. "'Surely we could believe a superior spirit would ever descend upon earth. Such would be the form he would assume.' "'How kindly he spoke, and how considerately!' exclaimed the father. "'How attentive he seemed, and how delicate!' rejoined the daughter. "'Such a majestic figure! Such a graceful manner!' 
It is so rare to find such condensation in so great a monarch. Monarch, cried Pauline, were you speaking of Roderick, father? And of whom were you speaking, child? returned her father, turning quickly round and fixing his eyes upon her. Of, of Mr. Montague, father, replied Pauline, casting down her eyes and blushing deeply. Pauline, said Monsieur de Malet. She started at the sound of her father's voice and looked timidly up in his face. Pauline, repeated he, my dear child, beware. At this moment a roar of cannon shook the tent. The sound echoed by the walls of the town, and leaping from hill to hill in lengthened peals, Pauline sank upon her knees, hiding her face in her father's lap. "'My child, my beloved child!' cried Monsieur de Malet, bending over her as though to shield her from danger. "'Heaven defend thee!' In this painful situation the father and daughter continued till the cannonading ceased. All was now still, and awful was the calm which succeeded such a tumult. Pauline raised her head and looked fearfully around. "'Come, my child,' said her father, "'let us endeavour to ascertain who are victors.' Pauline rose from her knees, and, leaning upon her father's arm, accompanied him to the opening of the tent, but she shrank back shuddering at the horrid scene which presented itself. Their tent was situated at the extreme edge of the camp, and commanded a view of the whole field of battle where the combat of the morning had taken place. The plain that stretched to their left lay covered with the bodies of the dying and the dead, whilst a multitude of horses, broken loose, galloped over the field, plunging, snorting, and crushing beneath their hoofs the bodies of their fallen riders. In some places the branches of half-broken trees strewed the ground, whilst their mutilated trunks, perforated with shot, remained as melancholy relics of their former beauty. Swords and helmets, mingled with overturned wagons and military utensils of all kinds, were scattered in wild disorder around. The earth, ploughed up by the cannon-balls in deep furrows, save where the ridges had been beaten flat by the feet of the combatants, looked wild and uneven as the waves of the mighty ocean arrested in the moment of tempest. Blood lay in pools upon the ground, and clotted gore, mingled horribly with remnants of human bones and brains, hung to the still-standing bushes, disfiguring the fair face of nature. Pauline shuddered, and turned eagerly to the other side of the landscape, which commanded a view of the town. Here still, however, she found nothing but war and death. It was the moment when the explosion of the petard set fire to the wooden bulwark, and Roderick and Edric leaped through the flames upon the beach. The bright glare of the blazing bulwarks relieved strongly their dark figures, and Pauline distinctly saw and recognized them for a moment, though the next they were lost in a cloud of smoke. She screamed and grasped her father's arm in convulsive agony. Monsieur de Malay was scarcely less agitated than herself, and as the smoke cleared away, they saw distinctly through its opening volumes Roderick and Edric upon the bridge, opposed by a crowd of Spaniards and fighting with inveterate fury. "'Roderick is on his knees,' cried Monsieur de Malet. But see, he rises suddenly, and plunges the Spaniard who had raised his sword to cut him down into the flames. Pauline did not speak, but she gasped for breath, and held her father's arm yet more tightly than before. Edric was now seen grappling hand to hand with the Spaniard, when the fire and smoke closed upon him, and hid him from their view. The next instant a tremendous crush was heard, and loud shouts followed by a rush of men. It was the sortie of the besieged. 
oh heavens cried pauline turning pale and resting her head upon her father's shoulder war is a dreadful thing you are faint my child replied monsieur de Malet. this is no fitting scene for you shall we go in oh no no cried pauline feebly i cannot leave the spot here shouts of roderick roderick forever roderick and glory rang in their ears pauline shuddered a faint sickness crept over her the scene seemed to swim before her eyes and she would have fallen but for the supporting arm of her father at this moment some soldiers carrying a bier passed at a little distance from the tent upon it lay the body of an officer his head hung back his long thick hair was matted with gore and a ghastly wound gaped on his uncovered breast pauline could bear no more she thought it was edric and she fell fainting into her father's arms Monsieur de Malet bore her back into the tent, and as soon as she was sufficiently recovered to enable him to think of anything but herself, he dispatched one of the soldiers appointed to attend them to ascertain if the Irish monarch had escaped. The soldier did not return, and Monsieur de Malet, too impatient to remain in his tent, sallied forth to learn the news himself. Scarcely was he gone, however, when the soldier's wife, whom he had called to the assistance of Pauline, perceived the town was on fire. Pauline's agitation now became excessive. She trembled in every limb, and listened till the sense of hearing seemed agony. She could not comprehend the cause of the noise and bustle made by the citizens as they came crowding into the camp. She looked forth, but the throng of half-naked men, women, and children that came hurrying along seemed inexplicable. She stopped a woman, who, half-dressed, had her clothes tucked up in one hand, whilst with the other she led two half-naked children. "'What is the matter?' asked she roderick cried the woman bewildered in her grief god bless the noble roderick where are you going demanded pauline of two young men bearing between them a bed containing their sick father roderick shouted the pious spaniards heaven in its mercy help roderick pauline was proceeding in her inquiries though without the smallest hope of receiving a direct reply the hearts and minds of the spaniards being so full of roderick that no other name could find utterance from their lips when she perceived her father my dearest father cried she running to him now i shall know all what is the matter roderick the noble roderick is safe repeated monsieur de Malet. pauline was chagrined she longed to hear of edric and she envied for his sake the renown of the irish hero can you too speak of nothing but roderick said she somewhat reproachfully and of whom else should i speak replied her father who else deserves to be spoken of for surely he is the bravest the noblest of men i do not doubt it observed pauline coldly every tongue utters his praise every breast swells with gratitude at his goodness and every hand is raised to heavens in prayers on his behalf continued monsieur de Malet. have there been many persons killed asked pauline how can you ask so foolish a question replied her father do you not see the ground heaped with slain but persons of note i mean let me see i think they said there were the generals h and m and counts l p and t oh groaned pauline impatiently and besides i think they say mr montague is seriously wounded i feared so sighed pauline he is so brave yes every one says he is brave and implores blessings upon his name for he saved the life of roderick 
Pauline's countenance had beamed with triumph at the commencement of this sentence, but it rather fell at the conclusion. She did not quite like her hero to owe his glory to anyone but himself. Monsieur de Malette continued. His bravery and nobleness of spirit were unequalled. Everyone praises him. There is certainly something very extraordinary in the character of the English. Their daring tempers and love of adventure lead them to quit peace and riches in their native country, to seek glory and distinctions elsewhere. This Mr. Montague is really an exalted young man. Pauline's eyes flashed joy. She felt she loved her father better than ever. She could have embraced him as he spoke, for the praise of Edric sounded as the sweetest music in her ears. Strange that so slight an acquaintance should have produced so strong an emotion, but such and so inexplicable is love. Pauline had no patience to hear the explanation of her father respecting Roderick. She even felt pressure in the repetition of his exploits, for he was the friend of Edric, and she retired to rest, happy in herself and contented with all the world. Having been first assured by her father that the surgeon confidently expected Edric would soon recover. Pauline, however, would have been very much puzzled to explain the cause of the excessive contentment that she felt. The situation of herself and father was as hopeless as ever. They were still prisoners in a strange land without fortune and without friends. But so little does happiness depend upon external circumstances that the breast of Pauline seems to have been a stranger to it till now. After arranging everything for the comfort of the refugees and his own soldiers, Roderick took a few hours of hurried repose. When he arose in the morning, he sent his compliments to Monsieur de Mallette and his daughter to demand permission to wait upon them. This was instantly and gladly accorded, and in a few minutes the Irish hero was in their tent. "'I condole with your majesty upon the situation of your friend,' said Monsieur de Mallette the moment he saw him. "'I hope he is better.' The monarch smiled, he forgave the abruptness of the question in favour of the excellence of the motive, and he replied that Mr. Montague was fast recovering. "'He regrets exceedingly,' added he, "'that it is not in his power to pay his devoirs here,' bowing to Pauline, "'and well can I sympathise with him, as I know what he loses.' Pauline inquired modestly the particulars of the combat. "'Upon my word, madam,' replied Roderick, I know very little about it. I thought your majesty had been engaged. That is the very reason. If I had not, the case might have been different. But as it was, I only just saw a great many people who tried to kill me, and a great many whom I tried to kill, and the smoke hid all the rest. A very satisfactory account of a battle, upon my word, cried Monsieur de Mallette, smiling. But other people saw more of your majesty's acts than you did yourself, and they say— you performed prodigies of valour. It is very kind of them to say so, said Roderick, for I am sure it is more than they know. Your Majesty's modesty wishes to throw a veil upon your valour, observed Pauline, but luckily it cannot be concealed. Your praises, madam, would make any man a coxcomb, returned the monarch. I own I have not the courage to refuse commendations from your lips. Pauline blushed. She fancied she had said too much, and now remained silent. "'I cannot describe how much I admire your Majesty's leniency to the inhabitants of the city,' said Monsieur de Mallette. "'It proves your benevolence is equal to your valour, though indeed it was sound policy to act as you have done, for by this you have conciliated the hearts of the Spaniards. Whereas if you had exercised any cruelty, they would have risen against you en masse. But this, I dare say, your Majesty considered.' 
ain't it replied rodlick smiling my majesty considered no such thing i only thought as a man i did not like to see my fellow-creatures burnt to death or poignarded if they attempted to escape i should not have liked it at all if i had been in a similar situation and so i did all in my power to save them that is all i know about the matter but to change the subject i have a great favour to beg of you mademoiselle de Marais. what is it asked pauline your majesty has only to speak to be obeyed oh for heaven's sake do not talk of obedience it is i who should obey i only ask a favour and it is that you will permit me to bring daughter and Werfen to kneel at your feet and kiss your fair hand in token of his homage i would not advise pauline to let him kneel said m de Malette, laughing as i fear if she does there will be some difficulty in getting him up again your majesty's commands said pauline do not talk of commands interrupted roderick i hate the word your majesty's wishes then continued pauline smiling shall be complied with this evening cried the gay monarch the doctor shall make his appearance till then adieu will your majesty have the kindness to present my best wishes to mr montague for his recovery requested m de Malet. certainly replied roderick but am i to tell edric that mademoiselle de Malet has no wishes for his welfare i wish i hope that is i think stammered pauline my daughter means her sentiments are exactly similar to my own upon the subject said m de Malet gravely for he was not at all pleased with the interpretation he thought the king might put upon the embarrassment of his daughter very well repeated roderick provokingly i shall tell edric that m de Malet and his daughter think exactly alike of him that is it is it not m de Malet was about to reply when the king nodding and waving his hand bade them adieu and hurried away i don't know what to make of the irish hero said m de Malet the moment he had left them with all his good qualities there is something very strange about him i don't know what to make of him pauline sighed assent though she did know what to make of him very well for she fancied he saw and ridiculed her partiality for edric this idea roused every spark of pride in her nature she could not bear the thought of being supposed to give her love unsought and she determined when she next saw roderick to show by her coldness and indifference when edric was mentioned how completely he had been deceived when roderick left the tent of m de Malet, he returned to edric whom he found pale and feeble you are the happiest fellow in existence edric said he i would willingly give all my glory and even my demoniacal renown which the spaniards talk so much about to be able to call up such blushes to the cheek of beauty as your name can raise oh if you had seen pauline by heaven she is the loveliest creature i ever beheld in my life as he spoke alexis the greek page who had been crouching rather than sitting at the foot of edric's couch resting his head upon his hands and looking absorbed in grief uttered a faint cry and rushed out of the tent there is something very extraordinary about that boy said roderick looking after him there is indeed replied edric and i have taken notice that he will often when he thinks himself unobserved sit for hours intently gazing upon you sighing so deeply occasionally that it is quite painful to bear him it is very strange repeated roderick musing i have remarked something of the same kind myself for some moments he remained lost in thought but it was not in his gay and joyous nature to suffer anything to depress him long and in the next instant alexis was forgotten 
the fall of seville and the destruction of the armies sent to defend it produced a powerful effect upon the destinies of spain the cortes again sent ambassadors to negotiate with the irish hero but taught by experience he now received them haughtily refusing to treat with them but as a conqueror and to put his threats in execution he determined to advance immediately upon madrid we must follow up our victory said he to edric after he had somewhat contemptuously dismissed the deputies from the shattered remnant of the allied army who came to sue humbly at his feet for peace these people are treacherous beyond description they do not understand leniency and they must be treated with sword in hand i am thoroughly tired of them their fickleness and uncertainty have quite disgusted me i will therefore march to madrid establish don pedro as their sovereign and take my leave of them for ever i am rejoiced to hear it exclaimed edric you will then return to ireland and devote your time to your own subjects i will try to satisfy them as well as i can but as perfection cannot be expected all at once you must not be surprised if some day i should fly off in a tangent and take it into my head to colonize the moon edric laughed if you promise to wait till then said he i shall be satisfied you may not find my project so wild as it appears rejoined roderick the moon is a very pretty mild modest-looking planet and i must own i should like amazingly to see what kind of inhabitants she contains and if i should determine to go there here is a gentleman who i am sure will be quite ready to accompany me dr andwerfen entered the tent as he spoke of what was your majesty speaking asked he of a voyage to the moon said roderick will you go with me with all my heart cried the little doctor rubbing his hands and looking all glee at the thought there i told you so said roderick laughing i should have thought the many adventures you had met with had cured your passion for travelling rejoined edric cured him given him a zest for it you mean replied roderick the appetite for travelling always grows with what it feeds upon and though the doctor may boast that he has fair seville seen so is a traveller i ween yet i do not doubt but that he is just as eager to explore new places as ever yes returned the doctor i certainly did see seville every part of it my dear fellow from its palaces to its dungeons resumed roderick nay i believe you were very near being indulged with the view of its ropes the doctor did not quite relish this raillery i can assure your majesty apropos de pate cried roderick interrupting him i had entirely forgotten i promised to present you to mademoiselle de molay you have not seen her since you dressed her arm and if i had not taken care to provide a more attentive surgeon for her i don't know what might have been the consequence we will go now will you accompany us edric i am sorry to ask you to do anything so disagreeable but i think it will be but decent to kiss hands take leave and all that sort of thing before we set out for madrid besides it may be as well to make some kind of provision as to what is to become of them in our absence then you will not take them with you said edric despondingly whoever heard of such a thing cried roderick how could i possibly ask the lovely pauline to endure the inconveniences of travelling with a camp and with a broken arm too i really have not the assurance to attempt it edric sighed deeply and his countenance assumed an expression of so much melancholy that roderick laughed immoderately i could not have believed it possible cried he that you could ever become such a sighing strephon the thing's incredible the pain of my wounds said edric blushing for even philosophers don't like to be laughed at 
"'The pain in your heart,' repeated Roderick, mimicking him. "'But come, come, I can pity you. I have been in love at least fifty times myself, so I know what it is.' "'But I am not in love,' remonstrated Edric. "'Denial is one of the most dangerous symptoms,' resumed Roderick gravely. "'Experienced physicians rarely think their patients really ill till they are not conscious of it themselves. Let me feel your pulse.' "'Pshaw!' said Eldrick impatiently. "'Will you go, then?' asked Roderick, laughing, and to avoid being further tormented by his raillery, Edric hastily rose from his couch and declared himself ready to attend him. The injuries he had received, having been only flesh wounds inflicted with a sabre, had now nearly healed, and the only change they had produced in his appearance had been to make him look more pale and interesting, one arm being supported by a sling, and a bandeau bound round his forehead. Pauline's eyes sparkled when she saw him, in spite of her intended indifference, and she could not command her voice so entirely, but that its tremulous tone betrayed her inward agitation. Edric's eyes also involuntarily expressed his pleasure, whilst the gay laugh and arc look of Roderick told that he was perfectly aware of what was passing in the mind of each. Dr. Andwerfen, however, saw nothing of the kind, his mind being quite absorbed in the delightful contemplation of his own glory. He had been presented to Monsieur de Mallet by Roderick as his friend and counsellor, the learned and justly celebrated Dr. Andwerfen and that moment seemed a sufficient reward for a whole life of misery, the doctor's ecstasy upon the occasion being so unbounded that he neither knew what he did nor what he said. Whilst Roderick had been speaking, indeed, he had been in perfect agony, stretching himself out on tiptoe, opening his hands and closing them again with every sentence, as though bursting with impatience to speak, that he might by his eloquence confirm the monarch's eulogium, yet trembling every instant lest he should interrupt it. Monsieur de Malet had been a doubler in scientific experiments in his youth, and, pleased to find a person who could talk to him and understand his ideas upon the subject, he soon drew the doctor on one side, leaving his younger friends to be entertained by his daughter. The conversation which ensued may be easily imagined. Lovers are not famed for any eloquence but that of the eyes, and those of Edric and Pauline were sufficiently expressive, whilst the languor of indisposition under which they were both suffering shed a pleasing softness over their ideas very favourable to the development of the tender passion, whilst Roderick, who notwithstanding his love for mischief was really good-natured, no longer tormented them with his raillery and Edric so well improved his time, that when Monsieur de Malet had finished his conference with the doctor, and Roderick informed him of his intention of leaving Seville upon the following day, after appointing him governor of the city, Pauline turned deathly pale, and every hope of happiness seemed to fly from her breast for ever. Monsieur de Malet, however, was not at all aware of his daughter's anguish, and, thanking the king gratefully for the high honour conferred upon him, his fancy began to revel by anticipation in the delights of governorship, and in ten minutes he had arranged in his mind as many improvements and alterations as it would take fifty years to accomplish. "'Farewell,' continued Roderick. "'I trust we shall meet again, if not here, at least in another and a better world.' "'Permit me, lady,' continued he, slightly touching with his lips the pallid cheek of Pauline, to-morrow with the dawn we advance, and we have so much to do ere then, that we must deny ourselves the pleasure of again enjoying your society. Farewell, Governor. You will find the necessary papers to install you here. Giving him a packet, 
and the soldiers have orders to obey you as myself. Come, Edric. Edric advanced, and bowing, took the hand of Pauline, and pressed it respectfully to his lips. His heart was too full to speak. Pauline could scarcely restrain her tears, and shaking hands with the doctor, she hastily retired to a part of the tent enclosed for her use. "'My daughter is not well,' said Monsieur de Malais. "'These scenes of blood and war are too much for her nerves, but she will soon recover when you have left us.' "'I doubt that,' murmured Baudric in a half-whisper, and soon after the friends retired. Edric was not insensible to Pauline's emotion and as he more than suspected the cause, a pleasure unknown before throbbed in his bosom, his eyes sparkled, and his whole appearance presented so complete a contrast to his usual depression, that Roderick could not resist the temptation of again rallying him most unmercifully upon it. "'Talk of medicine!' cried he. "'There is no elixir like the magic of a pair of bright eyes. All the physicians in my camp can affect nothing like it. Nay, you need not blush so, Edric. I did not imagine you were so far gone as that. I do not blush that I am aware of, returned Edric somewhat peevishly, for he did not relish being teased. At least I am sure I have no occasion for blushing. Well, then, don't look so like a bashful maiden, disavowing her first attachment. With a la pas, how can you think so? I did not suppose you were capable of such affectation. I am not aware that I have been guilty of any. Come, then, own the truth candidly. You love Mademoiselle de Malay. How can you think so? replied Edric, blushing deeply in spite of his efforts to look composed. You are indifferent to her, then? Dear me, I had no idea of it. I never was more completely deceived in my life. Well, if that's the case, I will resume my first design of trying my own fortune. How can you be so provoking? Why, it is very hard, if you are not in love with her yourself, that you should wish to prevent everyone else from being so. Your Majesty's rank, I should think, would prevent your even thinking of Mademoiselle de Malay. Why should my rank prevent the possibility of my being happy? Your Majesty's rank prevents the possibility of your marrying Pauline, and I should hope you would not dare to entertain dishonourable views respecting her. Dare? Dishonour? Do you remember to whom you are speaking, Edric? Perfectly, for I have not forgotten Roderick, though he appears to have forgotten himself. Hedrick! But I won't be angry with you. When people are in love, they never mean what they say. In fact, they very seldom know what they are talking about. I remember once when I was in love myself. Alexis, who had waited at the entrance of the tent during the visit his master had paid to Monsieur de Malet, and was now following them, sighed heavily at this remark. Roderick heard him. What is the matter with the boy? said he. Were you ever in love, Alexis? The page sighed yet more deeply than before, and, crossing his arms upon his breast, bent his head in token of assent. "'It is to be much lamented. You cannot tell us all about it,' continued Roderick, "'for you could never choose a more fitting moment for such a tale. "'As you may depend upon the sympathy of Mr. Montague, even if I should be so barbarous as to refuse you mine, we pity faults to which we feel inclined, and to our proper failings can be kind.' as one of your own rhymesters says. Eh, hey, Edric, don't you think he's right? I think you are very provoking. That is because I am touching upon a string that happens to be not quite in tune, so no wonder it jars a little. Do you not remember the old proverb? Touch a man whose skin is sound, he will stand and fear no wound. 
touch a man when he is sore he will start and bear no more how can you condescend to repeat such nonsense cried edric indignantly it is unworthy the poorest beggar in your dominions and how can you condescend to be moved at such nonsense edric replied roderick laughing come come own the truth for it is useless to attempt any longer to deny it say candidly that you are in love with mademoiselle de Malais, and i will tease you no longer in love is too strong a term i admire esteem and respect mademoiselle de Malais. i even think her possessed of a thousand charms and a thousand virtues but as to being in love well well we will not quarrel about words i do not think you will ever make a romantic lover you englishmen are too reasoning and prudent ever to fall violently in love your blood is as cold as your climate now we take the thing quite differently with us love is a devouring flame a fire that absorbs our whole being a stream that sweeps everything before it a madness a delirium in short i don't know what it is i think not said edric dryly sha sha continued roderick if it could be described it would not be worth filling it is all spirit all soul if you tie it down to rules it evaporates don't you think so in greece alexis the page bowed and shaking his head pressed his fingers upon his lips true returned his master i had forgotten but if you cannot speak you can write take these tablets i should like to know your opinion the page took the tablets and wrote with astonishing rapidity since your majesty condescends to ask my opinion i think that the love which can stay to reason or hesitates to sacrifice everything to the beloved object does not deserve the name bravo my little hero cried roderick tapping him upon the shoulder spoken like a true greek an irishman however would have said nearly the same the boy's slender figure trembled in every nerve at his master's touch and his cheeks were flushed with unwonted passion though his eyes remained fixed upon the ground from which indeed he rarely raised them roderick gazed upon him a few minutes in silence as though he wished to read his inmost soul then turning abruptly to dr Wenwerfen, who had taken no part in the last conversation he demanded gaily what he was thinking of i was thinking your majesty said the doctor gravely that it is a long way from hence to madrid and that it will be very fatiguing for your men to march so far upon my word doctor said roderick laughing you have really made a most sublime discovery and i perfectly agree with you in the justice of your conclusions that being granted continued the doctor if any means could be devised by which your army could be transported to the gates of the city without the trouble of walking there it would be a good thing certainly said the king the fact does not admit of a dispute the only difficulty is to contrive how it is to be done resumed the doctor musing ay there's the rub cried roderick laughing immoderately however if any one can do it i'm sure you can my dear doctor so rally your energies and consider the best means of commencing operations i'm sure if you exert yourself you cannot fail of success your majesty does me honour and i will endeavour to prove i am not undeserving of the confidence you repose in me said the little doctor drawing up himself to his full height and puffing out his cheeks as he walked on absorbed in meditation i have it cried he suddenly stopping short 
what does your majesty think of an immense raft excellent my dear doctor i see but three objections to making one large enough to convey the whole army first that we have no timber to make it of secondly we have no horses to draw it and thirdly the roads are not wide enough to admit it balloons would do but we have them not resumed the doctor still profoundly cogitating with his eyes fixed upon the ground and his hands in his breeches pockets what think you of packing the soldiers up in bombs and shooting them out of mortars asked roderick your majesty is pleased to jest observed the doctor gravely but ridicule is not argument certainly not replied the king and you mistake me greatly if you think i meant to ridicule the plan i only wished to remark that i feared it would be rather difficult to put it in execution that which can be accomplished without difficulty said the doctor solemnly is scarcely worth the trouble of undertaking and is quite below the consideration of a man of genius difficulties to a man of science are but incentives to action most sensibly observed my dear doctor cried roderick however as we have now reached our tent i must leave you to contrive some plan to bring us back from madrid as i am afraid we cannot wait now to put your designs in practice to enable us to get there we must march with the dawn of course you will accompany us certainly returned the doctor still musing then muttering to himself i don't much like the plan of shooting off the soldiers it would take such large mortars and so much gunpowder however there is no knowing what might be done i will think of it he retired to his tent though no sleep visited his eyes that night so completely had the idea of packing up the soldiers in bombs taken possession of his imagination roderick's arrangements were soon made for nature had certainly intended him for a general his intelligent mind foresaw everything and provided against every contingency brave in the field and prudent in council the only fault of roderick as a soldier was that he sometimes suffered himself to be carried away by his ardour when it would have been wiser to delay but this very impetuosity had its charms in the eyes of his soldiers as he never hesitated to expose himself to the same dangers or to undergo the same privations as themselves and they would all have followed him willingly into the very jaws of destruction after arranging everything for the morning's march the irish hero snatched a few hours of repose with the dawn however the drums beat the reveille and the irish army left andalusia to advance by rapid marches upon madrid End of chapter one of volume three